We pray you would help us to do that. Amen. Amen. Um, so I think this afternoon, um, Manchester United and Leicester are playing um, in the Premier League. Um, I was born in Leicester and I lived in Manchester, so that game should have some weight for me, um, but I really couldn't uh, less what happens. However, if you imagine that game and um, starting to play, kicking off at 2 o'clock, I guess, that one kicking off, Steve? You know? 2 o'clock kickoff. Two teams are there, the referee is about to blow the starting whistle, and he says, actually, do you know what, we're going to make a change for this game. We're going to try it without the ball. Nonsense, wouldn't it? Absolute nonsense. Whatever would happen in that would not be a game of football. Without the main thing, it is nonsense. And yet, isn't that what the world around us wants us to do? Now, that is, the world wants us to talk about massive issues identity, sexuality, purpose, ethics. We want to talk about those things, but we are not allowed to bring God into the conversation. A Christian friend said to me recently, no, no, a non-Christian friend said recently, said, I just can't understand why you would think what you think about those moral issues. And of course they can't understand if you try to approach those things without God in the picture. If you don't have God there, it just doesn't make sense. And without God, we can't see the true colour of things. Right, we're, we're kind of wearing a type of glasses which cut out certain colours so things don't look as they really are. One of the things that's very challenging for us as believers is we swim so much in a world where God is absent that we just soak that way of thinking up. We, we learn to think without God. We try to explain things without reference to God. We don't start with God and we find we're wearing glasses which are hiding the true colour of things. Well, the prophet Isaiah helps us to wrestle with the overwhelming problem of God, to wrestle until we are undone and redone. Isaiah always wants us to start with God. Uh, we're in our third Sunday in Isaiah. Uh, we've begun to see that the first five chapters are really building a picture and setting a context for what we will see in chapter 6 when Isaiah is called as a prophet. Uh, but what we've seen so far is that chapter 1 begins with God appealing to his people, uh, showing them that to refuse his offer of life is, is crazy, it is tragic and it's not necessary. And with the heart of a father, God holds out the medicine of his mercy. And last time we saw the message turn toward the issue of worthless worship. And those who, who go to church and do loads of religious stuff, but they're refusing to turn from their sin. And again, God's grace pours out as he says, Come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Well, this morning we're looking at the final part of chapter 1, verse 21 to 31. And again, Isaiah wants God to be centre stage. He wants us to see everything in relation to him. And if we've started to wear those glasses that hide the true colour of things, Isaiah wants us to take those glasses, put them on the ground, and jump on top of them, to smash them to pieces. Now, it'd be great if you follow along with me. Um, verse 24, if you look at verse 24, in the middle of our passage it says... Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares. Isaiah stacks up these titles for God to impress on us the indescribable immensity of the one who must always be at the centre of the stage. 
And these titles build up the overwhelming sense of God's sovereign power. God is God. Uh, the psalm tells us that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. There is nothing that will limit our God. He is subject to no one. Everything that exists has its origin in him. Now, every galaxy, every unexplored wonder of the universe, and every atom, every subatomic particle is made by him, exists because of him, that the, the pathway of quantum particles is defined and determined by him. Everything, every breath of wind, every mote of dust, every moment of history is all under his, exist, his exhaustive and meticulous sovereignty. He is God. No comparable, no power comparable to his power. He is the Lord. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the mighty one of Israel. His understanding no one can fathom. His ways and his thoughts are so much higher than our ways. He is other. He is uncontainable. We cannot understand God. We will never be done with learning of God. Our best learning will be that we know nothing. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel. But even as we hear that, don't we, don't we have a sense that the glory has departed? A guy called Bruce Ware writes about how the glory of God is trivialized in our times among believers. He says, what is now thought of as God is so pale and placid and tolerant and trite that no luster remains much less any startling and frightening brilliance. We are hearing from the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, and with God as this God, as he truly is. In the centre of the page, our passage helps us to see the true colour of things. And today, really, our passage is about sin. Uh, we don't really want to think about sin, I don't think. And the world around us rolls its eyes if we mention it. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle with it, and especially why the world struggles, is we just don't see the true colour. Our passage today calls us to see the true colour of sin and the true colour of God's response to it. So let's think, first of all, the true colour of sin. <clears throat> A lady called Becky um, tells of a, a, a psychiatrist friend of hers was describing some of the problems that bring people to see her as a psychiatrist. And then, then his friend stopped and said to Becky, somewhat skeptically, oh, but you're a Christian, so you think the problem is that we're all sinners. And, and Becky then asked her friend, well, how do you think the Bible defines sin? And her friend said, oh, probably something along the lines of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. What is sin? It's a good question, isn't it? How do we define it? Well, if we want to find the true colour of sin, it's probably too big a question for us this morning, but our passage goes some way toward an answer. And I think our passage shows four features, four shades to the colour, the true colour of sin. Here's the first one. Sin is prostitution. No, it's not saying prostitution is sin, but that all sin is a sort of prostitution. That's where it begins, isn't it? See verse 21? See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. The city of Jerusalem, the centre of the nation's spiritual life, the place God had chosen for his presence, a place blessed with justice and righteousness, 
a city that is set up as a, a kind of model and a microcosm of everything. But the story of this city follows the story of the, the whole world, the world's beginnings. The Bible tells us in the beginning God made a world where people lived in harmony and happiness. A world that was full of justice and righteousness, every blessing poured out. And then we say, well, what did people do with the good gifts that God has given? This city, in verse 21, is called the faithful. So the idea is of, a, is of a marriage, a commitment built on bonds of love, a relationship where two parties promise to belong uniquely to the other for always. That's the kind of relationship God wants to enjoy with his people. Committed belonging to one another. It's the great promise that goes through all the Bible from beginning to end where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We will belong together. But verse 21. The faithful city has become a prostitute. Just, just think for a minute. What does that image do for our understanding of what sin is. Now, now doesn't it show that sin is all about relationship? And about the most intimate of relationships, most awfully torn. For a married person to engage in prostitution. Now, this was the heart of the sin problem in Jerusalem. It was a heart problem. They weren't committed to the Lord who loved them. They weren't relationally faithful. They reached away from him for something else. Is, is that how we think about sin? That, that sin is betrayal at the most intimate of levels. So the wife become prostitutes. Well, this turning away from God works out in the way that people act. And the Bible summarizes all of God's commands as we are to love God and we're to love others. The, the love's the two sides of the same coin. We love God and we love others. And yet in this city, this city that once was indwelt with righteousness in verse 21. Once it was, this was the place where righteousness lived. But now, it says now, it's not righteousness who lives there, it is murderers. The murder, the disposal of human life, the ultimate lack of love for others, because sin is anti-life. What is the true colour of sin? Well, first thing we see in our passage is that sin is prostitution. Second thing we see in our passage is that sin is total corruption. Sin is total corruption. So we're now in verse 22 where God describes how pervasive is the degeneration of sin in this city. He describes it like this. He says, your silver, this precious metal known for its beauty, your silver has become dross. Not, not that it's a bit faded and needs to be cleaned. It has become what it now works. And then he says, your choice wine, the best, the finest of your wine, it is diluted with water. The thing is, He's trying to show that if you if you put water into wine, you don't end up with some bits of wine and some bits of water, but every part of the wine is now diluted. I think today that people seem to think that everybody has a kind of inner core of goodness. And that goodness, it can kind of get corrupted by the environment in which we live, but deep down we're all good people. We hear that, don't we? We're all good people deep down, apart from the really wicked people who are nothing like nothing like that. On the whole, we're all good people. But the Bible 
Bible says no. The Bible says sin has corrupted at every level. Right down to our deepest core, our original goodness is twisted. Not twisted beyond recognition, but there's no part of us unaffected. When sin enters, it works into everything. Twisting and rotting. And verse 23 unpacks the pictures. Shows how the, the prostitution and the corruption of sin is seen in this city. The third shade of the colour of sin in our passage is that sin is self-interest. See, verse 22 says, your silver, your choice wine, and verse 23, your rulers, those who should have been leading the way among you, what are they like? Your rulers are rebels, stubbornly fixed to their own way of doing things, and their true colour comes out when you look at what they love. But what do these rulers love? Well, they all love bribes and chase after gifts. You know, that they use their power for personal monetary gain. They, they love themselves. They love anything that will make themselves more. And there should have been justice in this city, verse 21. She once was full of justice, but now the same word is used in verse 23 to say they don't give justice to the fathers. And the fathers and the widows. That this is the least and the lowest in that society, the most vulnerable of all. And God's word has a special care for such as these. God is deeply concerned that they are looked after, but in this city, these rulers are only concerned in what is in it for themselves. If someone comes to them with something that they can take, they're happy to receive them, but if somebody comes with only a need, then they're dismissed without them. I was speaking to this guy recently, he's not a Christian, but he, he was, he kind of inadvertently disclosed how he sees the way the world works. He, he was struggling with life, he was very sad, but, but then he said, but you know what, I have to be cheery, otherwise I wouldn't have any friends. He said, you Richard, you wouldn't want to be my friend if I was always grumpy. But did you hear what he said? He said, his understanding of the world is that we will only care for people that we can get something back from. If somebody can give us nothing, if they're only sad all the time, if all they have is a need, we won't want anything to do with them. And isn't he right? Isn't that how the world works? Isn't that how we so often operate in the world? We only want to give to those who can repay, even if that their payment is they make us feel better about ourselves. So we use our resources to feed our egos. But if people have nothing to give, then we're not interested in their cause. Sin is deeply self-interested itself. What is the true colour of sin? Sin is prostitution, sin is total corruption, sin is self-interested. And then the end of our passage touches on a fourth aspect of sin. The fourth colour, the shade of sin in our passage is that sin is idolatry. Go to verse 29. That you will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Does God not like gardening? Is that what it's about? No, no. What, what, what's happening is that the, the place where they live, the Canaanites who lived around them, they worshipped the God of the trees and the God of the gardens. Uh, we know that King Manasseh promoted that kind of idolatry in the land of Judah. And it's just another way of describing prostitution. Prostitution means a faithful spouse has been betrayed, but the betrayal is with someone or something else. Sin turns us away from God, but it turns us to something else. As G.K. Chesterton said, when men choose not to believe in God, 
They do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. And the only alternative to trusting the Creator is to start trusting creation. And so these people, they worship the false gods, the, the gods of the trees and the gardens. They, but they were looking to these things to bring them life. Because that's how the culture around them said life could be found if you worship these things. Well, that same lie comes to us today. It's got a different dress, but it's the same lie. Uh, the same lie we hear at a time, all the time, don't we? If you want to have life, you must have this product. If you want to have life, then your life must look like this. You must have this type of relationship, this type of career. If you want to have, you must have. You must have this if you want to live. Uh, in the, the comedy called I Hate Susie, and there's an actress who stars in this, and she's um, part of the story. She's recording a voiceover for a commercial. Uh, it's a commercial for a phone company. She has to kind of record this voiceover, but, but she keeps getting it wrong, and they, they, they go over and over again until the director says, says this, if you want to get it right, imagine you're a god. It's always the same. The text is, buy this. The subtext is, you're never going to die. That's the subtext of every advert we ever see. This product will make you live. It'll make you live forever. We believe it, don't we? So we buy all the stuff. The sin is when we take something good from God's creation and we mess with it and make it something it was never meant to be. That's what idolatry is, when good things become God things and bear a weight never intended for them. But, but just notice here how it all works at the level of the heart. Now just like the bad rulers, they love the bribes. What they love is wrong. Verse 29 is what they delight in. It's what they choose that is so foolish. That's how sin works. It's a, a corruption that it, it, it distorts what we want. So we find nonsense to be delightful. We choose it. We choose what is never going to meet the deepest needs of our souls. What is sin? Well, we are never going to see sin in its true colour unless we fight to get at the centre of the stage the Lord. The Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel. Without God in the picture, then sin is prostitution, is nonsense. But sin in its true colours is a deep betrayal, it is a total corruption, it is self-interested abuse, and it is foolish idolatry. And we need to ask ourselves, is that how we think about sin? I don't think it's how these people thought that Isaiah was speaking to. This wasn't obvious to them, but Isaiah wants to wake them up. He wants to put his hands on their shoulders and, and shake them. His language is sharp and provocative. And, and I wonder whether we might need to take this language to the Lord. Uh, to, to find a time, maybe in this week ahead, to take this language to the Lord and to say to the Lord, will you help me to understand what this means for me? To, to say to the Lord, Lord, is that how you see my sin? Lord, Lord do you see my sin as prostitution? How are we to understand that? Lord, Lord, is my sin really a corruption of my desires? Am I loving the wrong things or loving in the wrong ways? Lord, search me. Are my actions just self-seeking? Looking, overlooking the needs of others. Lord, search me and know me. We don't want to live in illusion, do we? We want the truth of God to shine into our lives, even if it shows us like this. Maybe we would take some time this week to have that conversation with the Lord. And, and yet we can't stop there. 
And we've not seen the true colour of sin if we don't see the true colour of God's response to it. Uh, we can only think about sin in relation to God. Without, without God in the picture, sin is just meaningless. And so let's now think about the true colour of God's response to sin. Uh, we, we often hear or maybe give the advice that we shouldn't take things too personally. We hear that advice all the time, don't we? Maybe, maybe it's often for a good reason we need to not take things too personally. If somebody drives too slowly in front of us and we act like they're working out a personal vendetta against us, it's probably they're just lost and have nothing to do with us at all. We shouldn't take it too personally, should we? Some things, though, they are personal. Some things should be taken very personally. And when we look at the Lord's response to sin, we find his response is emotional and deeply personal. Our, um, our, our English translations fall over themselves sometimes, and I think that's what happens at the beginning of verse 21. You see how verse 21 begins? It says, see how, as if it's saying, look over there, there's a cloud in the sky, look at that pigeon, see these things. But, but that's not what's happening. This, this word at the beginning of verse 21 is this same word that begins the book of Lamentations, and the book of Lamentations is called Lamentations because it is a lament. It is a cry of deep soul-torn sorrow, and the book of Lamentations is named after this word that starts verse 21. It is a cry of soul-torn sorrow that says, why? How? The Lord is horrified at what has happened to this city. And the Lord is saying, how could something so beautiful become so broken? How did this place where life was to flourish become a place where life is The Lord's response to sin is horror. It should not be like this. You know, we are made in the image of God and something of that horror still lingers in us, doesn't it? Doesn't it still linger? Don't we feel that the world is broken? Don't we feel a horror that says it should not be like this? And we feel it when we see the evil of war. And we feel it when we see harm done. We watch it in the, the tears of despair, the, the tears of despair that fall down cheeks. And even when we feel those same tears hot on our own, and something in us says, it should not be like this. How did it get here? Now, how do people ever get to a point where such damage can be done? An act of mindless cruelty that just sends ripples of sadness for generations. A moment when truth was covered up and then generations get destroyed by the impact. I don't need to give examples, do I? No, we all know enough of the brokenness in our world, the brokenness in our own lives. We feel the horror that says it should not be like this. That's the Lord's response. No, what we feel from the tiny scope of our little experience, the Lord sees all of it. The Lord sees every hidden abuse, every harm-laden word, every violent death. He sees it all and he is horrified. He says, how could something so beautiful become so broken? How did the shining silver of his creation become dross? How did the good wine of his happy world become so diluted? And the Lord takes sin very personally. And it just follow through me from verse 23. Verse 23, these rulers, they do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And so verse 24 says, therefore, because of that in verse 23, 
because the least and the lowest, because the most vulnerable, because the helpless are oppressed, then the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, and what does he declare? He says, ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Now hold on a minute. Who are his foes? Who, who is attacking the Lord? And verse 23 says nothing about attacking God. The attack in verse 23 is on the helpless, the least, the lowest, the last, the lost. And you say, well, is God too mighty to have a connection with the nobody people? Isn't he too great for that? Well, Isaiah 57 says, this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God's so great that he has a special connection with the least and the lowest. The help of the helpless, as we say. Uh, we see this when God became flesh. When the Lord Jesus lived among us, and, and at one point he talked about the end of the age. The Lord Jesus told that there would become this great reckoning when all the nations would be gathered before him. All there before the Lord Jesus. And Matthew 25, Jesus says that he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or ill, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the mighty God, the God of glory, the holy power on high, personally identifies with the very least. So to oppress the lowest and abuse the most vulnerable, he takes as an attack on himself, and he will vent his wrath on his foes. So we see here something of the, the mighty heart of God. God is personally affected by the way people harm each other. Especially, especially when those in need of care are overlooked and their cries for help is mute. God takes it personally. But, but did we hear how his declaration begins in verse 24? The very first word of verse 24 says, Ah! So we have this word already in verse 4, translated as woe there. This is a funeral cry. This is a grief lament. It is, it's, it's a grief that is pouring out from the heart of God. Grief that is pouring out because of sin, because of its effect, and because of its punishment. You see, when this God approached this city of Jerusalem, when he came towards this faithful city that had become a prostitute, that was corrupted and filled with injustice, and he knew that he would vent his wrath upon it, and he looked out upon this city, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in flesh, in Luke 19, looked on the city, and he wept over it. Grief poured from his holy heart. 
uh, we were travelling back from Manchester yesterday, we listened to uh, an audio book of um, C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, the first one of the Narnia series, and it, it, it has a scene where, 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 where a boy who has um, he's, he's done something wrong that has brought evil into Narnia that will have effects for generations to come. And, and he's standing before Aslan, kind of speaking about this wrong that he's done, and, and it says that as he speaks to Aslan, the mighty lion, he's looking at his claws and he's terrified. But then it says in his despair, he looks at the lion's face and he sees that there are tears in his eyes. And when God vents his wrath, it is his strange work. And Lamentations 3.33 says he does not afflict from his heart. When he comes to bring his punishment on sinners, it is not his heart work. We tread on holy ground when we speak of the heart of God. But we see here his response to sin. His response is a horror. How could something so beautiful become so broken? And when we hear that, our tiny souls say, Amen. We feel the world is broken. And the work that the Lord takes sin so personally that we cannot harm another human without attacking the image of God in which they're made. And he grieves. Tears pour down the face of Jesus as he contemplates the destruction that he will bring to Jerusalem. This is what our God is like. Not to be understood, but he is to be worshipped and adored. But what's he going to do? And this is his emotional reaction, if we can speak like that. But what will he do? You know what happens when you put one of those kind of mints in a bottle of Coke? And it explodes. Utterly unstable. But that's what happens here when, when sin and the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, when these things are brought together, there is an inherently unstable condition that should make us shudder in terror. What will God do? Well, verses 24 to 26 show three things that God will do. The first thing that God will do is that he will punish. Verse 24. I will vent my wrath. His personal reaction, he says, I will turn my hand against you. And he speaks here to sinners and to all sinners. The hand of mighty God will be turned against all sinners and there will be no excuse and there will be no escape. So we see it at the end of the passage in verse 29 to 31 as it speaks about idolatry. Foolishness of looking to created things to answer the deepest needs of our souls. Foolish because those created things will never be enough. Because we are made for God and only God can satisfy. And if we trust anything other than God, then it says, you will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. But these things cannot give what we hoped from them. So verse 31, the mighty man will prove to be an illusion. Tinder and his work, a spark, both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. As Jesus said, there will be eternal punishment for all his sin. That is his strange work. The first thing he will do, he will punish. The second thing he will do, he will purify. Verse 25. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. And when gold is heated with fire, all the impurities, the muck and the dross rise to the surface and it's 
taken away so that only pure gold remains. Because sin, together with the Lord, is not a stable condition. He will not simply punish, he will purify. He will take out the corruption, take away the badness. He will, he will ruin, he will refine what has been ruined. Take the broken thing, and then he will remake it. And he will make it beautiful again. You see, we may rightly shudder in horror, in terror at the mention of his anger. But even then, our hearts might just dare to hope. We might say, yes, the world is broken, but don't we, don't we long for it to be made new again? second thing is he will purify. The third thing, he will restore. Verse 26. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. The faithful city. Did you hear that? Did you hear what it says? That the same city that threw away her faithfulness and abandoned her husband and became a prostitute, the same city, God will restore. She will be what God always meant her to be. She will be beautified. She will be called again the faithful city. All those sad things will become untrue. You see how God responds to sin? You see that in the true colours of God's response to sin, the overriding message is that sin will not win. Do we know that? Sin will not have the last word. Now our world is so fallen, we can easily think it will never be changed. And there is so much badness, even we see that, don't we? All the, the, the badness that is out there and, and, and all the badness that is in here. God says sin will not win. Do you know why sin won't win? Because of the Lord. The Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, He declares it. He who is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. His plans will always come to pass. Whatever he says will be fulfilled because he is unstoppably marvellous. He will punish sin. And he will purify. And he will restore. And sin will be no more. And we all must ask, where does that then leave us? Verse 27 and 28 set out two alternatives. Every one of us will find our destiny in one of these verses. Verse 28 says, Rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. The verses that follow show that we will get what we want. And if we set our loves and our desires and choose what is not God, we will get what is not God very clear, isn't it? If we set ourselves against God, we find that God will be set against us. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. Sinners will be broken, and all of us are sinners. And so we say, well, what possible hope is there for any of us? Well, verse 27 says, Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. This is how God is going to bring about his great purifying restoration. When it says Zion will be delivered, the word is redeemed. A price will be paid. That's what it's saying. A price will be paid to get Zion back. A price will be paid to get the bride come prostitute back. The corrupted silver. The city of murderers. The price will be paid to get her back. 
A price will be paid to restore what has been lost. And it says it will be paid with justice. That there is no sin that will not face God's righteous anger. But God will find a way. A way to purify and restore sinners and punish all their sin. And the great question that rings out from verse 27 and 28 is, how can there be a way for sinners to be purified and not perish? history replies that God loved the world and so he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life you see that beloved son the Lord Jesus Christ he gave himself to pay the price for our sin and on the cross of the Lord Jesus Jesus presented himself to the venting of God's wrath against his foes. On the cross, the hand of mighty God fell on Jesus Christ and his soul, as it were, perished for the sin of his people. Sin was punished there. And in the New Testament book of Titus, it says, Our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us, gave himself to pay the price for us, to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself the people that are his very own. Jesus paid the price to get us back. He paid the price to redeem his people. So we've got to ask ourselves. Every one of us has to ask ourselves, are you his people? Are you his people? The most important question is that do you belong to the one who paid the price for sin? Do you belong to the one who suffered eternal punishment in your place to purify you and to remove your sin and to restore you along with the whole of creation? Are you his people? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Verse 27 says, this is for the penitent. That is, this is for those who repent. Are you the penitent? That is, have you brought your sin to the Lord and confessed to him your need of a saviour and asked Jesus to be your saviour? Verse 27 and 28 put before us two alternatives. To rebel or to repent. You see, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, he will punish them. They will perish under the hand of his wrath. But, Lamentations 3.33, he does not afflict from his heart. Punishing sinners, it is not his heart work. So Jeremiah 32 says, Well, the Lord says in Jeremiah 32, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and soul. The work of rescuing sinners from his wrath through the death of his son his work of purifying the perverted and restoring the wretched and making all things new, even making us new. His great work, the mighty God rejoices to do that eternal good and he does it with all his heart. So ask yourself now, we'll have a moment of quiet, ask yourself, where do you stand before this mighty God? Are you rebelling?